And if you turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, we'll start kind of getting ourselves situated there uh, because we have a, a lot of ground to cover. Well, not a lot of ground to cover, but we, we did other stuff today and appreciated people. And so we have a little less time in which to cover the normal amount of time we have to use for covering. It's too much to be said. Um, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, um, verses 1 through 7, and today is really about verses 4 through 7. We looked at 1 through 3 yesterday, um, where Scripture speaks of the fact that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And so if anything, last week we looked at our old condition, what it means that we are dead to God. And today we look at our new condition, what it means for us to be alive to God in Christ, there are a few topics, I think, that are, on the one hand, more easy to talk about as a Christian than the love of God in Christ for us. But on the other hand, there's probably not a topic in Scripture that I can think of that I find it more dissatisfying, my inability to communicate or to, or to really embrace with thoroughness right, what it means that God loves us. To such a degree that in his gracious and kind ways that he would draw us to himself. It wouldn't be hard to talk about if if what we meant by God's love was simply that God loves us. And because he loves us, he has this kind of natural, emotional connection to us. Then we just have to do a little bit and then we're okay with God. It's not difficult to talk about if it was we do our part and God does his part and we meet in the middle. If it's a 50-50 proposition, or even if it's a 90-10 proposition, and I just need to do my small part, that's not difficult to talk about. I could encourage you guys, hey, do better. You need to do better. Because if you do better, then God would actually love you. The difficulty lies in the fact that we as human beings, right, like Scripture has already said, dead in our trespasses and sins, convinced that we're okay, and then even later convinced that our sense of morality, our sense of right and wrongness, that, that our own way of justifying ourselves is sufficient. And with all of that kind of banked against us, the difficulty for all of us is to understand what it means that God does everything in salvation. That his grace is not just sufficient, but is the only sufficient. That his love is not just a kind of nice love, but it's a sufficient, effective, great love. And that I find to be difficult to express. Our hearts push against it. Our hearing doesn't quite hear it. And in the end, even for those that walk in faith and believe these great truths, we find it difficult to express just in a short time or by our human efforts, what it means that the depth of God's love for us is such that he sent his son, not just to pay for our sins so that we can be kind of be counted in some large community that will worship him from a distance, but to make us his children and to make us just like his son to him. I think that's what Ephesians 2 as a whole, the entire chapter, is trying to convey 
And that's, that's where we pick it up. We pick it up from verse 1 that we looked at verses 1 to 3 last week. But verses 4 through 7 will build upon this, this idea, right? The old condition was that we're dead to God, hopeless, impossible to save, left out in the cold, and convinced and happy in our sinfulness. And then the new position that we have now in Christ and an explanation of how we got here. How is it that we are made alive to God in Christ. Let me read you the passage. We'll take a look at um, our, our text uh, after we pray. But let, let's read our passage. Let's read from verse 1, even though we're looking at verses 4 through 7, so we have the context for our minds again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we are thankful. We're thankful for the songs that we sing about the vastness of your love for us, the the infinite and amazing nature of your grace expressed to us in the person of your Son. Lord, I pray for the hearts that are here, for the Christian hearts, that they would be renewed afresh to their commitment, their love commitment to a God that is so good. And for those that are wondering and uncertain about their faith, that they might see with clarity that it is never you who have put yourself at a distance, that the issue is never with you and your willingness or your graciousness or your sufficient love. We praise you that you are our God and that you are the only means of salvation. Oh, we thank you for our time in the scriptures and for your continual grace in our lives that sustain us until that final day when in all of eternity, our salvation will be a demonstration of the glory of your grace. And may you be praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're talking about being made alive in Christ. We talked about the old condition, all right, and the new condition. And then uh, made alive to God in Christ. Just three movements, I think, in this particular passage is because of his great love, by his grace to make us alive, and to show his glorious grace. So let's just dive in. We start with uh, the, the idea of because of his great love. And, and the reason why that's an incomplete statement is because this, this, the verse is an incomplete statement. Right? We said that verses 1 through 7 is one long sentence. 
It's another long run-on sentence that we've already encountered in the book of Ephesians. And as we get to verse 4, it just picks up as if it's already been talking about something which, is, which, is, which it has, which Paul has. And in verse 4, this is what it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, it begins by talking about how he is rich in mercy. But as it speaks to his wealth, his richness and mercy, the first thing we should take note of is that first expression, but God. Paul begins with this contrast. And his contrast is to let us know or to remind us of what we just read. That we were, all of us, dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked in them. We cherished them. We're convinced that we're okay in them. All right? We're under the power of the prince of the air. He worked in the sons of disobedience, whom we were. That it was, whether it was, was Satan's influence, the world's influence, our own desires and lusts, we were captive to our sin. And we were okay with that. And in stark contrast to our position as dead, as walking dead, and as convictionally, right, contented in our sinfulness, in our sinful state, in the midst of that is the contrast of who God is. But God. We dead, but God. God is the only means by which this spiritual condition can be reversed. And what kind of God is he? What is he like? Well, he's a God that takes initiative in saving us. In fact, there are different words throughout these, uh, these three, four verses that speak to uh, God's character in terms of how he cares for us. Uh, verse 4 says that he is rich in mercy. Uh, later on, verse 4 says he has a great love. Verses 5, 7, and 8 all speak of his grace. And verse 7 talks about his kindness. These are all descriptions of how God reacts to us, that this is the kind of God that we worship. God, but God, is the contrast. And God, in contrast to what we deserve and who we were, he is rich in mercy. Is God being rich in mercy. The, the fact that, that, the, that the author of Scripture, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses a term like he is rich in mercy tells us that he is trying to point out that God isn't just, you know, pretty merciful, sort of merciful. He struggles, but he usually comes out on the side of mercy. Or that he is a little frugal, right? He gives you mercy, but little bits at a time. He doesn't want to spoil you. None of that is expressed here. By adding rich as an adjective to the idea of his mercy, he being rich in mercy, it tells us that he is overflowing, he is abundant, and he is generous. They say, yeah, but that's uh, the God of the New Testament. That's the Jesus kind of God. How about the God of the Old Testament? Dude, this is from the Old Testament. You guys recall that when Moses said, hey, Lord, can I see your glory? One, God says, you can't see my glory. You're going to die. But I'll tell you what I'll do for you. I'll put you in a cleft of a rock. I'll put my hand over you. And as I'm passing by, you'll see my glory. And as he's passing by to demonstrate his glory, this is what the Lord says or proclaims about himself for Moses to recognize that part of his glory is not just the visible display of what he is, 
Not the, 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 you know, the mortally dangerous reality of the weight of, of, of his excellence, but also his character. In Exodus 34, 6, this is what the Lord says as he passes before him. He proclaims, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now there's more, right? It talks about how, you know, he doesn't let sin go, etc. But that phrase right there that we just read, that becomes kind of the Old Testament phrase for expressing what kind of God that we have. And the reason why I'm saying that is because that phrase is repeated dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. I'll give you just a small example. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 8. Listen, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Sound familiar? It's a repeat of what God had revealed to Moses to be his glory, what God is like in his glorious nature towards sinners. You say, okay, well, that's the psalmist. Well, how about Jonah 4.2? You guys remember the story of Jonah? He runs to Tarshish, the opposite direction, right, of Assyria where he's supposed to go. And at the end, he goes and he proclaims, you know, you guys are going to die. God's going to judge you. They repent, unfortunately, as far as Jonah's concerned. And he sits outside the gates watching, waiting to see if God would judge them. And he doesn't. And this is what Jonah prays to the Lord when he realizes that the Lord doesn't judge the Assyrian people. Jonah 4.2. Jonah prays to the Lord and says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. See that phrase, right? That God is a God that is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That, that's not just the thing that God said once. That becomes kind of his catchphrase, his moniker, Right? Like, you know, like, like superheroes have like a catchphrase. Daredevil is the man without fear. It's a good, it's a good catchphrase, right? It's a good nickname. If we had to put a nickname to God, it would be this, that he is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. At least that's what it seems that the Old Testament saints and the writers of Scripture understood God to be expressed best by that phrase. It's not a New Testament idea. It is more fully developed in the sending of his son. But like Micah 7, 18 says, God is a God who delights, who delights in steadfast love. Look, the Old Testament term chesed, right, chesed, um, we translate that sometimes to grace, sometimes to loving kindness, and we emphasize it's about God's covenant-keeping nature. That's all true, and we should double down on that. That's excellent. But we need to be careful not to leave it only at covenant-keeping. It is covenant-keeping with an expression of love that is both spontaneous and generous. It is, it is the kind of God that we're talking about. This is his nature. He is rich in mercy. You may not find much mercy from individuals and the world around you, but praise the Lord, our God is well-stocked. He is glad to dispense his mercy. He is generous, spontaneous, amply supplied, and, and more than glad and magnanimous with all that he has. 
what, what is the singular solution to being dead in our trespasses and sins? Is God. Because what kind of God is he? He is a God that is rich in mercy. So that if I were to ask you, who is God? What is he like? I don't know what your answer would be. I don't know, if you, I don't know what your first thought would be. But I have a guess that God's first thought, based on this passage of Scripture, is that he would say that he is a God that is rich in mercy and that is great in love. That's the second part of verse 4, right? It begins, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. There's a few things that are happening here. One is uh, the preposition that we're translating because. When it's combined with a word that is emotional, right, in that particular verb case, it usually signifies motivation. So we should take this as God's motive. In other words, and I think the ESV translates this real well for us, right? God being rich in mercy, and here's his motivation, because of his great love with which he loved us. This is why he acted the way that he did towards sinners. This is why he rescued some of us, is because of his great love with which he loved us. This is his divine motive. You wish there was more than that. Like, like, you know, sometimes we say, well, why would God save a sinner like me? Why God save a sinner like you? And there's part of us that, that would like to think, oh, because, you know, I, I could serve the Lord, you know, better than other people. Or maybe because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little stronger than most humans, right? Which is kind of true, right? Or because I'm, you know, better looking, you know, right? right? A little smarter, <laughs> kind of pushing the envelope there, right? Like, like, whatever it is, there's something in us that thinks that there's something, Lord, that, that is savable, that, that is adorable, that is likable in us, right? And the answer is no. It, those that are dead in their trespasses and sins are not likable, lovable, or have added anything to deserve any more than any, anyone else because no one has deserved even that an ounce of pity or mercy from the Lord. It is because of Him. He loves us with His great love. And so in Romans 9, when it talks about why it is that He loved Jacob but didn't love Esau, was God unjust, right? If He's going to love one twin... Shouldn't he love the other? We have, we have a few twins in our congregation. And as far as I know, I'm pretty sure I love both twins equally. In most cases. <laughs> I think in all cases, right? Why would we not love, love both, right? That's the way we think about it. But the question is, well, is God unjust if he loves Jacob but doesn't love Esau? And he says, by no means. And he says this. For Moses said, this is Romans 9.15. For Romans, for he says to Moses... I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The question of why God casts his grace upon some is not because of the sum, not because of the objects of his grace, is because of him. He chooses to love. And you say, well, why, Lord? Why would you love me? And he doesn't give us a clear answer. He says, that's what I do. I am free to choose who I love. If I, was an ob- if I had an obligation to love you because you served better, 
If I have an obligation to love because you are less sinful, if I have an obligation to love, then that's not a love of free choice or decision. But here, God is a God that loves with a great love with which he loved. No obligation. His absolute divine freedom to choose, and he would choose us. He would choose you. I know. I, I, you think constantly, right? Whether it's the 12 of, of Jesus' disciples or other men and women in Scripture, you think, well, Lord, you probably could have done better, right? And even when it comes to us, the Lord almost certainly could have done better. But that's not how his love works. There's no exact way of saying, oh, it's because of this, this, or this in the object of his love. No, it is because he loved us with his great love. And then if you haven't caught it, 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 it's over the top emphatic, right? It's like, I I don't know how Paul could just kind of, like this isn't even good writing, right? Because of the great love with which he loved us. It's like you're doubling the term. You're talking about the thing as a noun, and then you're turning into a verb, right? And you're adding great in front of it. Like we're, going, we're, we're going way over the top on this. You add the adjective great to love to say that there's a love, and it's a great love, and then that great love was the kind of love which he loved us. It's too much love. We, we get it. Or do we get it? Romans 8.39 says that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. See, when, when all is said and done, and we, we go there often, we talk about Romans 5, why do bad things happen to us? Why are difficulties ours? Why is the particulars of the struggles of my life these particular issues? And we say, we can honestly say we, we don't know the full answer to that, Right? If you tell me, yeah, you don't understand my life. My life has been hard. I probably have to say, amen, I I don't know how hard your life is. But I know that God loves you. Well, what's the evidence of God's love for you? Well, Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, come back to dead and trespasses and sins, while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. Not, Not when we were a little bit more savable. Not when we showed a little gumption, right? Not when we started looking like, okay, this guy might be okay. I might include him in. When we're still dead in our trespassing sins, God sent his son to be the payment of our sins because of his great love for us. God is rich in mercy. God has a great, great love by which he loves us. And that is his motive. Is because of his great love. We are made alive to God in Christ because of his great love. Well, secondly, we're made alive in Christ by his grace to make us alive. Verses 5 through 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's an interesting and subtle shift again, and we've seen this earlier in chapter one, where Paul will shift pronouns. He's talking about, you know, individuals, human beings, and as he does, he sometimes uses the second person, you, and sometimes he uses the first person, plural, we. 
And he does that here. And I remind you that this is verses one through seven in chapter two is one long sentence. So he's changing the subject or the object, depending on which, which way you want to think about it. Right. He's, he's talking about human beings at first as you were dead in your trespassing sins. And now we were dead in our trespasses to include himself. And, and the reason why I think that's interesting is because he's doing that in mid-sentence. He's doing that in the same sentence. He is shifting gears as if he instinctively recognizes it's not just that they were dead in their trespasses and sin. It's not just that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He was like, so was I. We, all of us. So when he reiterates what he's already said in verse 1, in verse 5, he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses. The other thing is uh, the, the conjunction chi can be used as an and. Some of your translations will say, and when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's, that, that's not weird. That, that's okay, right? But the other option that the ESV takes, and I, I, I like it, is that it could be used to intensify. And that's the come it translates it even. So if you take it from verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, you, you catch the emphasis of that? Paul's trying to say, look, it wasn't just you that were dead. We were all dead. And even when we're dead, the demonstration of his great love for us is that he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. Made alive together with, and that together with is significant in fact, um, there's um, a few words that are going to come up, right? A few verbs. There is made alive, there is raised up, and there is seated. And in each of those, right, the suffix in the Greek, it's, uh, I'm sorry, the prefix in the Greek is a prefix. It's a prefix that means with, but it means together with. Uh, probably too cumbersome to translate it that way, but you'll catch the with Christ, raised us up with him, seated us with him. And all of those terms are, are intentional. It is to draw us to the attention that the reason why we are made alive is not simply because God made us alive and we're separately made alive, but we are made alive because of our union with Christ. It is with Christ. We are made alive with Christ. We were dead. All of us were dead. But now we've been made alive with and because of Jesus Christ. The, a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 2, if you recall, Ephesians and Colossians written about the same time. So Paul uses similar vocabulary and terms. And as he does in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, listen to this. And it'll sound, very, it'll sound very familiar because it'll sound like this passage with a little bit of extra. It says in Colossians 2, 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us, all our, trans, uh, all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us in its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I read that because in that parallel, it says things that are similar to what is said here. But that second part, that verse 14 of Colossians 2, man, that is, that is brilliant and beautiful. And it draws us to the idea that we were dead, but we we're made alive because of the work of Christ on the cross. Verse 14 says, I'll read it again, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. We have a record of debt. That sinful thought, that sinful action. Right? 
That, that time in first grade when I did, right? That time when I cheated on this, right? Every one of those, one by one by one, we have a lifetime's worth of a record of our spiritual debt. And it stands against us and it has legal demands upon us. And what scripture says is this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How are we forgiven of our, of our great debt? How are we made alive? We're made alive because of the cross work of Jesus Christ. Because he died the death we should die. In fact, Romans 6 says, we died with him. When he died, we died. And similarly, when he is raised, we were raised. There is tremendous power in the idea of making something that is dead come to life. Not as something that is sick, get healthy. I mean, there's, there's good power in that. We have a lot of guys in the medical field, thankful for them. They do their best to try to make us healthy, all right? They don't raise the dead. You don't take, right, non-living things and create life. Only God does that, right? God created this universe and life in this universe, and he did it with the word, right? He did it just with a thought. He creates ex nihilo out of nothing, out of death and deadness. That is a God thing. And that power to grant life where there is only death, that is a power that belongs to the Lord and that he gives us in his grace and his love. So that even when, even when we're dead in our trespasses, he made us live together with Christ. So that in Philippians 3.10, Paul says, man, that's what I want to know. I want to know him my Savior, Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection. What he means is not, I want to understand how he was raised a little bit more carefully. He's saying, I want to know that power, that transforming power that gives life to dead people, to dead souls, to the spiritually dead. And he goes on to say, that I could even share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, because he knows that he has been raised to new life in him. This leads Paul to kind of, you know, make this parenthetical phrase, parentheses, right? And in your English text, it'll say, even when we're dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, and there's a long dash, by grace you have been saved. It's almost like he inserts this, like it just kind of, just kind of he just kind of burps it out, right? Like he's in mid-sentence, you know, don't act like you're grossed out. That happens to you too. Right? Like we're just talking, and it's like, oh, excuse me, right? It's like it just comes out. It is, it is in him, it needs to come out, and it just kind of comes out. And it's that phrase, by grace you have been saved. So it's like he takes a natural parenthesis, a hiccup, if you will. He has to say this, and if there is any expression, if there's any phrase in Scripture that better summarizes what Christ has done for the redeemed, I don't know what that phrase is. The phrase, by grace you have been saved, it becomes this repeated phrase. Again, a phrase that just kind of comes out of Paul, even in the midst of his writings. It comes out. Why? Because it summarizes all of salvation. He's going to expand on this phrase even more next week in verses 8 through 10. But see, at, at least in part, we need to understand that Paul senses the necessity to remind us again and again, yes, because of his great love, God has made us alive in Christ. It is by grace. It is his grace. It is his grace. 
The fact that he wants to emphasize that it is by grace alone that we have been saved gives us his emphasis, his, 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 uh, um, his desire and passion to express that there is nothing in us, there's no part of salvation that is owing to us because of something that we have done or earned. The term grace itself means unmerited favor. It's a word that can be translated gift. And it's not a gift if you get it and then you have to pay me back little by little, regardless of what small installments. It's no longer a gift if, if I receive it and then I have to give it back. Or if I give it to you, but then I say, okay, now you got to give it back to me. Right? That's not how gifts work. And so by the term grace, there's a couple things that we can emphasize immediately. One is the freeness of the gift of salvation itself, that it is given to us, not because of deserving, not because of earning, and is given to us without charge to us. We negate grace, according to the book of Galatians. If you start to put on a mentality of works, okay, I'm going to do this so that God like me more. I think God is a little less pleased with me today, so I'm going to read a little bit extra. We'll pray a little harder, right? If we enter into a mentality that says, if I do this or stop doing this, God will love me a little bit more. We have lost the graceness, the giftedness, the freeness of God's grace to us. His grace is not just sufficient to rescue us and to make you alive when you were dead, but it's sufficient for all things in your life. It, it does not require of you to change something so you get a little bit more grace. God's grace is abundant, flowing, lavish, according to chapter 1, and doesn't end. There's a gifting that is part of this salvation that God has given to us. The second thing to understand is it's unilateral. Gifts go one direction, Right? Again, if I gave you a gift, I got you an Apple Watch, I say, hey, here's a new Apple Watch for you to use. You say, oh, thanks, I'm going to try it on. Oh, okay, no, 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 you need to give that back now. The gift, the gift period is ended. Now give it back, right? That's not a legit gift. If you demand it back or you, you, you want it back or you demand a payment for it, it's either a loan or you're lending it out or it's borrowed. It is certainly not a gift. And so if that's the case, the unilateral nature of God's blessing of salvation means that you add nothing to this. That needs to humble us regularly. I add nothing to my salvation. I add nothing to your salvation. All we do is direct ourselves back to the work and majesty of Jesus Christ. Salvation can't be earned or deserved at all. But salvation is also not dependent on the recipient. My eternal destiny is not dependent on how well I hang on to this, how well I do. Again, a works mentality, right? It is dependent upon who God is. And Paul would express again and again, by grace, you have been saved. Because the end result of emphasizing grace is the answer to questions like this. Who gets the credit, the glory for your salvation? Well, if you're adding to it and you've done a lot, you've accomplished a lot, you've read a lot, you, know, you put a lot of sins, it seems like you get some of the credit. Maybe not all the credit, but some of the credit. You did your Alibaba's. Your confessionals, you take mass, you get some of the credit, don't you? Or does God get all the glory? Does he get all the credit? 
because it's all of grace and grace alone. How certain is, is this salvation? Well, you know, if it's not just by grace, but it's kind of like God does his part, I do my part. Salvation is only as secure as I make it secure, right? I'm the weakest link in this. God is a big old honking chain link. I'm a little tiny, it's a piece of chain link, right? And then there's problems there. I, I often bend, I often break. My salvation is not that certain. Or, if it is all of grace and grace alone, if God is the beginner, the sustainer, and the finisher of my salvation, salvation is secure. Because it's not really dependent upon me. It's dependent upon who God is and what he has done. It answers the question, well, how then should we live? Because through this whole, whole time, some of you might be thinking, well, okay, that sounds great, but you, we can interpret this as God is gracious, God is gracious, God is so gracious, I could just live in my sin. Paul in Romans 6 has an answer for that, and his answer is, may that never be. May you never think so lowly of your relationship with the Lord that you just think he just dispenses good stuff for you so that you can live your sinful lives. Because in the end, it's still a love relationship. How should we live? We should live in the freedom and in the privilege and in the delight of a God that loves us with such infinite grace. We should live in gratitude, not in bondage to sin. Bondage to sin is my personal enslavement to something I want for myself. It's my idols, me feeding my idols versus I should be worshiping a God that is this good. If he was half this good, and we might make a case, okay, you could choose this God or not choose this God. But if he is as good as scripture reveals him to be, does he not deserve from us our allegiance, our love? And should we not be motivated to, to do better, not because he requires it of us at all, or because I do something that earns some kind of favor in his eyes, but simply I want to do better. Why? Because this is my God. Those of you guys that are in love, right? I'll leave it to marriage love, because I realize a lot of singles in the room who think that they're in love. We'll just leave that at the table, all right? But if you're married in love, isn't that how our marriage, love, relationships, and commitments work? I want to do better, not because I have to. It, sometimes it feels like, you know, I have to. I have to do better or else, or else she's going to be mad, right? But it should feel like I, I want to do better because I love her, because she loves me. Right? It, the example I always use is if you feel an obligation, right? Obligation could look like this, you know, happy anniversary, Kathy. I got you flowers, chocolates, and we're going to go out to someplace nice to eat. She's like, oh, honey, that was so nice of you. It's okay. I was obligated to. <laughs> Scripture commands it of me. And if I don't do it, then I'm in sin. So good night. <laughs> good seeing you, right? That's a business transaction. A relationship looks a little different, feels a little different. And that's what we have, right? What is eternal life? And this is eternal life. That they might know the one true, that they might know the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. All right. So as we think about by grace that you have been saved, the, the, the idea, the emphasis, that, 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 that expression is meant to summarize everything that is God's glory, that is God's magnificence, that is the person of our God that makes him so different from other gods. All right. 
And he displays that glorious grace in how he rescues sinners, undeserving ones, and makes them his sons like you and me. See, the thing that we haven't put as much emphasis in, and I want to make sure that you understand, right? That if we are, oh, sorry, we've been on Made Alive um, with Christ. The with Christ part is so significant. It's almost as if the way that Scripture and, and the theological construct that we are to understand from Scripture in the New Testament is that our union with Christ, because we're with Christ, that in Christ, with Christ, united with Christ, we have died. And that we are raised. And that we are seated. See, that's the second part that we want to look at. right? If verse 5 establishes the fact that we're made alive with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Then verse 6 just kind of doubles down on what that means. What does it mean if we're saying that we have been made alive? What does that look like? And it looks like victory. It looks like two verbs that he uses, being raised up with Christ and seated with Christ. And I'm emphasizing the with Christ part because that's what the verbs emphasize. All of this happens because of what God has done for us in our Savior. We haven't just been raised up. We haven't been raised up with Christ. We haven't just been seated. We are seated with him in the heavenlies. And that's what our scripture text says. And when we think about us being raised up with him, us being united with him, then as Romans 6 talks about, then our union with Christ is the basis for everything that we have. Romans 6, verse 6 to verse 11 says this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. We have been crucified with Christ. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, that was a good summary of what it means that we are in Christ. What it means that we are united with him. So that if we are made alive in Christ, this is the victory that we're talking about. He has been raised up, so in him we have been raised up. Talking about resurrection power, right? He is seated in the heavenly places. And so in him, we are seated in the heavenly places. Raised up, like I said, means that we are raised from death to life. Seated with him means that the victory is complete. Salvation is secure. And the work is finished. Listen, I, I know we're not literally or physically raised up, right? Not yet. We are not physically or literally seated with Christ in the heavenlies. The idea, though, is that that is our status, our station, that when God looks upon us, he sees us in the same way that he sees his son, that we ought to be enthroned with and in Christ, that we have been raised to newness of life, raised from the dead in and with Christ. It is because of our union with Christ that we have all of this. So there is an already portion. We are in that sense, spiritually speaking, status speaking. We are already resurrected. We are already seated with Christ. But there's also a not yet. 
is not fully realized. Not, not yet. So you have that, that interesting tension that Scripture often gives us. The already, this status, this spiritual reality, already ours, but not yet fully realized. It will be realized one day. Whatever God has done for Christ, he has done for us because of our union in Christ. Right? What, what does it mean that we are raised up with Christ? It means that the Christian is now, spiritually speaking, a new creation. The old things, the dead things, have passed away. New things come. We, we are transformed. We are brand new because of the resurrection power, the power of God to give life to that which is dead. It, it also means that we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, which means that victory is secure. Our salvation work is done. doesn't mean that our ministry work is done, and it doesn't mean that sanctification is finished, Right, But it does mean that nothing will be added to the finished work of Jesus Christ in terms of our salvation in our life. Like eternal life itself, the full expression of eternal life is still to come. But we are right now, we are complete in our salvation. We have been declared righteous by our holy judge. And because of our union, our oneness in Christ, because we have died and been raised and, and are victoriously seated with Christ, we are his. We are his sons and daughters. And all of this, because of who Christ is, because we are, we are made alive with Christ, we are raised up with him, and we are seated with him. So this is what it means that we are we are made alive with God in Christ is because of his great love and by his great grace to make us alive. So if you think about the first verse, right, verse 4, it's about his motive. Well, verses 5 to 6 is expressing what it means, like what it means that we are made alive in Christ, right? And then finally, it gives us his purpose. All of this is to show his glorious grace. Take a look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The so that that begins verse 7, that lets us know that this is the purpose clause. This is giving us God's intention. Why, Lord? Why would you be so rich in mercy and so great in love? Why, Lord, would you take us who were dead in our trespasses and make us alive together with Christ? Raise us up and seat us with him. Why would you do all of this that is so above and beyond anything that is required of you, of you? Why? And his answer is so that in the coming ages, he might display, show, show off the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The final purpose of giving us eternal life, of making us alive, raising us up, seating us with Christ, is so that his glory and particularly the glory of his grace, would be known through the endless ages. So what is God's final purpose in saving sinners like us? To demonstrate how immeasurably rich his grace and kindness in Christ is. God will be known for all of eternity, first and foremost, for his grace and kindness in Christ, for fools like you and me, to the praise of his glory. Remember in chapter 1, in the Barakah, that, that section on all the blessings, right? Blessed be God because of this, 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 and that. Three times 
it speaks of how God has an intention to be praised for his grace, right? Verse 6 of chapter 1, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. God acts in a way to save sinners so that they could display how gracious and how wealth, how wealthy he is in his kindness towards those that do not deserve it, cannot earn it, and yet are the objects of his great affection and love. The term immeasurable is a good term. Immeasurable is a good translation. Um, One Greek uh, lexicon says it this way, translates this word this way. It says, it's a word that means to attain a degree that that extraordinarily exceeds a point on a scale of extent. Now, if that sounds a little academic, this is what it's saying. So if you have a scale, like, you know, zero being your junkie, to, I don't know, infinite, you know, being your God, right? He's saying, like, it's like the scale, as you're going up the scale, it's to say that this word, translated immeasurable, means that you've gone so extraordinarily beyond a particular point of extent that, that it's really like the acceleration, right? It's like going beyond. It's surpassing, outdoing. And so in the New Testament, it's often translated that way, to surpass, to go beyond, to outdo. Immeasurable is great because as an adjective, it is saying what is so immeasurable, what is so great and growing that we can't ever put a cap on it and quantify it. It is the riches of his grace. The immeasurable riches of his grace. The surpassing wealth of God's grace is displayed in his salvation of sinners like you and me, in raising and exalting Christ, right? In raising and exalting us. By the way, um, an interesting thing to note is that when God is said to have raised and exalted Christ, he says it in chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. In raising and exalting Christ, God demonstrates his surpassing great power. That's what verses 19 to 20 in chapter 1 says. His surpassing power is the means by which he has raised and exalted Christ. But in raising and exalting us, it says that God here demonstrates his surpassing riches in grace. So when he raises Christ and seats him in glory, it is an expression of his great power. When he raises us and seats us in glory with Christ, it's an expression of his surpassing wealth in grace. It's just about God and his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The term for kindness is simply that. It's a word that means generally good, generosity sometimes, right? And the idea that he is kind beyond measure. And that his grace has expressed itself in its kindness towards us. Do you remember in Romans 2.4, which all of us should know, right? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. If If that sounds a little off to you, then you're not understanding God's grace well. Because the motivation that we find to be most effective, spiritually speaking, is not fear of punishment. But it's the reality of God's kindness to us. When we walk in his grace and we are embraced in his love and we are thankful and, and, and just, you know, exuding in our praise and appreciation of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ, that is a motivation to cause us to repent. That's a motivation to cause us to put away sin. 
And if that's the relationship that we have, then that's a relationship. Anything short of that, anything that feels like I have to do this or God's displeased with me, that's an obligation. That's a job, right? That's a contract. The relationship part is that God's immeasurable riches of grace have been displayed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And that is enough for us to want to live to his glory. So later on in Ephesians, when we are called to walk in his love, this is what it's talking about. When it, when it, when it calls us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel by which we are called, this is the, the worthy that we are supposed to try to live to. Because God is so good. Because Christ is immeasurably gracious. And because of that, I want to live better for him because it delights me to try to serve. Because he is worth living for. See, that's the motivation that is often lacking in us. And we often wander back to our works mentality of, yeah, I feel guilty, so I should probably do X, Y, and Z. I haven't been doing good, so I should show up to church more often. You know, I haven't been blessed lately, so I should read more often. I should pray more diligently. Those are obligations and contracts. Scripture speaks of God's love for us. This began with God's motivation in terms of his desire to save a dead people, that he is rich in mercy. He has great love with which he loved us. And then it examined the extent of his grace, that we who were dead are made alive together in Christ, that we are raised up and seated with us, with Christ in glory. The already, although it's not fully realized yet, in verses 5 through 6. And it comes back, to what the purpose of it all is. So that in the coming ages, for all of future eternity, we would look at each other. We'd see our God. And we'd, we'd be convinced of the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. So the question to ask ourselves is what keeps us from living the kind of life that we want to offer to him because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. What keeps us from that? See, my point is, it's not, it's not the Lord. It's not his lack of love. It's not his lack of graciousness. It's got to all be in us. If you're not doing well spiritually, or you're, you're not sure if, if this salvation or this gospel is, is really good news for you, then let me rest you know, your, your wandering thoughts. Let, let me just encourage you to recognize that God calls you to repentance and to believe in this glorious gospel. He calls you to this. He doesn't set up some demands previous to it. He doesn't ask you to go out, get cleaned up, do some things, and then make yourselves right. He doesn't. He just says, humble yourself, agree with what he has said about your sinfulness and your wrongful self-dependence and your self-righteousness. Leave it at the door and depend solely on Christ and find his salvation to be true and his grace to be sufficient. It's not... It's not a God problem. It's still a me problem. And you have an opportunity to come humbly and to receive Jesus Christ unto salvation and life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for all those that have heard the message of the gospel today. That for those that know its truthfulness, that they will walk in a manner that is indeed worthy of all that you have given to us in Christ. And not because of an obligation that they have set upon themselves 
with any, or with any kind of a works mentality of righteousness, but because you are our God and you are good. And we desire to honor you. And Lord, for those that do not know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, would you open the eyes of their heart to understand what grace is and what love looks like as expressed in Jesus' death for us, even while we were still sinners. We praise you for your grace and ask that you bless the rest of this Lord's day to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.